You're listening to The Fully Occupied Show, presented by Occupier. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, Today's episode is a great one. Uh, We are joined by Ben Wright. Ben is the head of flexible office solutions at The Square Foot, which is a tech-enabled brokerage company uh, that advises companies on everything from, you know, lease deals all the way through how they should occupy space. From a flexible workplace perspective, Ben has a lot of deep experience. Uh, He was the founder of Upsuite. Uh, which was a B2B marketplace for flexible office solutions. And at the square foot, uh, he's doing a lot of uh, cutting-edge work uh, in terms of trying to figure out the new normal that uh, occupiers, but also landlords, are thinking about in terms of how uh, space is utilized from a flexible perspective. We dive pretty deep into uh, how companies are thinking about their flexible work situations, but also how owners are starting to think about repositioning their buildings Uh, for office users. One quick thing that I found really interesting of this was how the nature of the agreements between landlords and tenants are changing uh, from a flexible workplace perspective. It's no longer about rent and TI and square footage and more around partnering uh, through management agreements, uh, which are becoming much more normal in the space. Anyways, uh, take a listen. We hope you enjoy and thanks for joining the show. All right, Ben, welcome to the Fully Occupied Show. Thanks for uh, coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me, Matt. Yeah, I think we were kind of doing the pre-talk here uh, before the show, and uh, I, I like your LinkedIn game, man. That's how we, we found you, and talking about things that are super relevant, not only to your customers, but also ours. So we thought there would be some good synergies here to to talk about the uh, the flex working environment uh, that we're all kind of trying to make sense of right now. Um but for the benefit of our audience, why don't you give your, your your quick bio here? Yeah, I mean, so to to put it in a in a simple way, I, you know, I have a background in helping market cities uh, for for companies moving, big and small. Biggest deal we ever participated on was was Boeing chose Charleston, South Carolina, to invest hundreds of millions, if not billions, of dollars, and and now. You know, I work with companies much smaller than that, uh, even down to, to one person, yeah, you know, startups to try to find space. And a um, little bit of how I got there, I, I founded Upsuite, which is a marketplace for, for co-working space that uh, is North America based and has about 4,500 locations of Flex. I, I'm also, you know, sold, sold the company to Squarefoot. So now I'm, I'm head of Flexible Office Solutions at Squarefoot, which is a New York-based tech-powered brokerage. What that means is now I'm able to use kind of flex data and flex knowledge to do everything from help occupiers choose flex, uh, help them think about hybrid strategies, but also help operators and owners decide really do they have assets and locations that are really most appropriate for flex. So, so a pretty broad role within within the real estate world. That's great. Um, I think we could probably have a conversation around all three of those uh, personas that you help out because I think they're all probably trying to figure something out right now with, you know, what the pandemic has done to the use of office space and, and how that's starting to impact how corporations think about the real estate. So like, what are, like, maybe we can work from, 
kind of the boom of flex office space until now. Um, because I think everybody just thinks WeWork is the poster child of flex office space, but obviously Re- Regis had been around for decades before that, you know, there's your local, co- you know, uh, shared office sp- uh, spot in your suburban office park was always around, but for some reason, like, I don't know, eight, nine, ten years ago, all of a sudden it was like, we need to flip commercial real estate on its head and everything has to move into like co-working and like flex work. Like, why was there such like a, we have to do this mentality at that point? Do you think it was driven by WeWork just going out and leasing so much space and just becoming such an iconic brand that everyone was like, I have to try this? Or do you think there was actually like a trend towards more flexible work, uh, especially in the knowledge economy? Uh, Because obviously we understand how WeWork, you know, kind of failed and maybe they're coming back, but has it changed at all? Like what, what has been kind of the, the, the main driving force of flex work over, over the last decade or so? Yeah. So let's separate, we'll separate kind of the supply side, the suppliers from the occupier side, and maybe the first, first take will be the supply side. So first, you know, real flexible work or co-working was, was really, I think they were called business centers or executive suites early on. So right. So the Regis, Regis's of the world, the premier, you know, premier car workplaces really started in the 90s to give executives, attorneys, accountants, a private office they could go to. You're right. Usually in the suburbs, um, close their door and and hang a shingle. That was really kind of the, the first bit of it. And, and it really went that way until after 2000 there was kind of this need and it really started in San Francisco and, and went further towards what people called co-working, which honestly in those days was one big room, a bunch of big tables and a bunch of kind of tech bros hanging out together because <laughs> they wanted to work together flexibly. And I, I do think that ties to freelancing and some trends that, that, you know, have now become much bigger. I, I think it really kind of started around that time. But from a product standpoint, the, the, the first co-working, call it co-working 1.0, were these kind of small 5,000 square feet, 10,000 square feet, single rooms with big tables where people would kind of huddle together. What I think co-working 2.0 was, was, was around when WeWork came on the scene about 10 years or so after some of the earliest co-working. And, and what WeWork led was really building private office suites and 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 not just big open spaces, uh, but private offices where teams could work together. And so, so you had executive suites. Then you had this really what we call hybrid flex, which is is private offices for teams, private offices for one, some open areas, but all of it on flexible terms. So, so from from then up until the pandemic, that was really the the mode. Yep. Um, coming out of the pandemic, it's really interesting. A few things happened. The the biggest in-demand spaces of all of those almost went back to the past. So it was the one person private office in the suburbs where if you wanted to get out of your house because you were yeah, not stir, able stir to crazy. handle it anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. You, you would go to a place that kind of looked like a Regis. I mean, it didn't necessarily look like a Regis, but it was place you could go to with a door. Yeah, and just so, a private place where I could plug my computer in 
be quiet so I can get on calls right. and, you know, not, I'm, I'm not looking to like have these, uh, you know, serendipity moments at the coffee bar. I just want to get in there and get like my work done because I can't do it at home because right. my kids are home. <laughs> so I think, I think you'll find this when we talk, I'd love like conjecture. I actually love conjecture, but I also really like data. And, and in the middle of the pandemic, I remember looking at all the occupier requirements that we got what happened is they got real, they got much smaller, meaning it was, I think we got a, a massive amount of one person requests, right? And of those one person requests, 71% of them ended up going to a private office, not to an open room with a big table to kind of want community. Uh, Cause that's not what people were thinking about during the pandemic. Uh, it was, I need to, I need to get out of my house. I need to not hear my dog barking uh, or, you know, have my spouse or my kids all over me. Uh, I just need a place to work. And so, so that takes us to kind of current day. And really, I think what's happening now is there's a trend in new, new locations for operators. There's a huge boom in new locations um, after a contraction during the, the pandemic. And a lot of those new locations are avoiding the 20, 30, 40 person large suites um, within co-working at least. And they're headed back to ones, twos, fours, six, six person offices. And, and so that's kind of the state of the supply side of the market right now. And it's, it's honestly uh, super exciting. Almost every co-working operator is growing. That's the supply side from the early days to, to now. And, and we can also talk about the occupier side too, if you'd like. Yeah, for sure. On the supply side, do you think that, um, those operators are attractive tenants to owners given that you you have a retail and an office audience i think i think there's a really interesting tie-in to talk about so so one of the things we studied on the supply side during the pandemic is who's closing their doors right it flex can empty out real quick uh when there's a pandemic with the short-term leases that they yep or it's the really easy to just not in. renew that lease and just say hey we're just gonna right. Work from home. Yeah. So so Flex reacts really quickly when there's a something like a, a pandemic or a change in, in demand. So a lot of, of operations uh, scaled back and were empty. And as a result, a lot of them closed. And, and we tracked about 900 closures, uh, which is between 20 and 25% of all co-working locations closed. Well, so that, that, that that's pretty key if you're an owner right? Thinking about, do I want to bet on this space? And so what we found though, was really interesting. The, the majority of the closures were really large, well-funded, urban folks. So the Regis's, the WeWorks, the, there was a company called Breather that a lot of folks may know okay. that went completely out of business and had hundreds and hundreds of locations. So these are all companies that raised a lot of money and, yep. and they ended up using the pandemic to trim their assets that that um, weren't performing that well uh, or uh, get out of real estate deals that were not favorable to them. So it was less about the fundamentals of the industry in the downturn that caused closures. It was more about opportunistic uh, trimming of a portfolio. So take that forward to now. The the risk, oh, the other thing that, that's related to that is the majority of closures were leased spaces, meaning an operator has a lease with a with a with an owner that you know that locks them in for a certain period of time, and and the main 
outcome if it was a failing center was to essentially uh, terminate the lease or, or, or leave. So fast forward now, we work with about 19 different co-working operators uh, as clients to help them source uh, new locations. And the vast majority of those are seeking a, a different deal. They're seeking a, a revenue share or a hybrid deal. Some are still wanting to do leases, uh, but the majority of, of deals for new locations that are getting done are, are management agreements, rev shares, or, or hybrid deals. And and as, as we do more and more of these, we're realizing that this takes us a little bit closer to retail, right? Retail right. and and why I believe that's happening is a, is a retailer chooses a location because they can make money there. A co-working operator chooses a location be, for the same reason, because they think that they can make money there. So, so if that's really the goal, partnering with the owner, sharing in the upside uh, seems to make sense. So, so those deals are really evolving quickly. You know, five years ago, there were a handful uh, led by industrious of, of companies doing rev share or hybrid deals. Now uh, it is the dominant uh, approach. Who, who's responsible for the CapEx in that type of deal? Meaning for TI and, and yeah. build out and, and all of that. So um, the other big piece is we're finding uh, low TI type, type deals for uh, operators to go into where they can quickly get up and running. Um, as you, your audience may or may not know, there are co-working spaces that'll that even pre-pandemic we're spending 250, 270 yeah. bucks a square foot to build out. It's really really expensive. nice space. Yeah, very nice space. Um, really purpose built for for flex or for co-working. So uh, that's a really uh, great tool to use to help new co-working operators find space. Um, it also really enables a, a, a rev share when neither party has to come out, you know, say come out of pocket to, to total 270 bucks a square foot to, to open up a new, a new center. Yeah. You mentioned the deal side of it getting closer to retail, like with the rev share or the percentage uh, sales type of, of structure that retailers traditionally use are, are retail spaces being repurposed now as flex spaces, because there's been some concepts over the years that have tried to take advantage of that downtime of a restaurant during the day, like create a co-working space out of it, or, you know, I mean, because their location is so good, because that's what retail is based on, you know, they're right in the amenities base, like immediately. So are, are, are you seeing a shift towards different uh, types of space being utilized for co-working? I'm thinking like even like hotel lobbies or something like that, or, you know, certain types of spaces that are just like dormant for a certain period of time during the workday, seems like those could potentially make like good flex spaces. So I think I, there's an interesting kind of divergence here because you're right. And and I remember when, when WeWork was right before they were, they were trying to go public the first time in 2019, there was a lot of discussion about co-working as an industry. And I remember Sam Zell famously, famously said, co-working is where you, you know, is essentially for your, your less desirable space that you can't lease any other way, right? That that was basically what he said. And so that's led to let's put co-working in underutilized spaces like restaurants and hotel lobbies and and places like that. So 
there's a there's a strong misconception that you should put co-working in just underutilized space. And um, so there are a lot of concepts, like you said, like, hey, let's put it in a restaurant because the restaurant's not used during the day, or let's put it in a hotel lobby or so on and so forth. Those are fine, but they're not revenue generating. I think that the, the latest thinking is that that most buildings, uh, especially trophy assets, have to have flex in them so that you can package flexibility along with a long-term lease for today's occupier, meaning occupiers know that there's going to be growth and, and shrinkage in who uses their space, when they use their space. And so the, the really the, the, the best thinking now among owners and operators is that we're going to put flex really in every trophy building. So it's the reverse, right? It's put it in the nicest buildings and use it to really um, uh, speak to today's occupier. So, so that's the world that we live in uh, more so than, than the, you know, Hey, let's, let's take a, a nasty second floor space and turn it into that nobody wants and yeah. turn it into something. It, it's really, how do you use it to, um, to sign and retain uh, today's most modern occupiers. Yeah, it's really interesting how that that like the industry has figured that out, right? Because I think some of the uh, operators, the owners that dip their toes into the flex game early on, did exactly what you what we're saying. What you're saying is they took like you know the second, third floor off the main lobby, and we're just like, yeah, this is low floor space. It's not that desirable. The views kind of suck, but we're gonna dump a ton of money into it, and make it look really nice for all of these like flex operate uh, flex tenants and they're going to come in and they're going to lease space from us and we'll sign a lease with them for this you know eight person office or something whereas now it's moved towards giving that tenant a option optionality within you know the the building to say look you know our business might flex from 40 people coming in every week to eight and we still want to come into an awesome building and be in the trophy asset but we just can't commit to a 15 year lease for a hundred thousand square feet. So as long as you have that like experience in the stacking plan of the building, then you can actually still provide a really awesome workspace, not um, on maybe a daily basis for everybody, but it's not like you're stuffing them in the back with like no windows. And because that space, you couldn't lease to a, to a traditional tenant. And we'll get to the, right. we'll get to the so, occupier in a second. I just had a follow-up question on this for you. You said that you also advise owners on like flex strategy, like how how should we th be thinking about flex for our assets? How does how are they looking at it from a valuation standpoint now? Because if if your traditional fund goes out and raises uh, you know half a billion dollars, you know to to invest in you know class A trophy office space. And the traditional model of valuing a building is based on, you know, the credit of the tenant, the length of the leases, you know, making sure that, you know, you're keeping, you know, TIs down and rents high. And all of a sudden you're using valuable space in the building for flex uh, use. How does that impact the actual like value of the property? And has that, have people figured that out yet? Or are we still right at the beginning of that? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I'm far from a, you know, a commercial real estate debt expert or a valuation expert. Um, but I, but what I believe is happening is um, 
traditional owners are, are seeing with every new proposal that they send a, a requirement for flex or a requirement for flexibility at least. So they have a decision to make in their leasing process, which is gone are the days where where an occupier might predict their headcount and say, you know, I'll take X amount percentage more space just to make sure, right? So, so essentially gone are the days that leases would be what is needed plus some, right? And now the, the conversations are, hey, we're gonna we're gonna probably take, you know, long term space in sophisticated negotiations with sophisticated occupiers. We'll take a certain amount of fixed space, but we really do need overflow space for, you know, one day a week or one day a quarter or one day a year. And so we we want you and we want this building to be able to solve that for us. So I I really do believe owners are responding first and foremost. And, and a good example of this is Tishman's Fire. Tishman has really been aggressive at, at building their own their own flex brand within trophy assets like Rockefeller Center. Yep. And they keep adding to it. And the, and the principle is we're going to earn more traditional business by being able to package flex and event space along with a full floor for a tenant that might traditionally have taken more, but but that's a winning strategy for us. So so owners are are starting to respond to the demand that that's been building over the last 20 years lenders however um and we have a lot of this is really dynamic right now but lenders are, are really nervous about a certain percentage of, of buildings being more than flex many of them will treat flex space even if it's full as vacant space because it doesn't they, they just the don't even criteria they just don't even consider it like as 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 a uh, leased space Right. So there's a real friction right now for owners and a real challenge who know that they can improve and activate their buildings by having flex in it, who have vacancy, but whose lenders uh, really don't see it the same way. And so they're they're, um, and and that comes to a head with any deal between an operator and a and a landlord that is that is anything other than a lease. Right. Which I already told you. The majority of new locations are are not leases, so it's we we've had uh, operator deals get turned down by the lender, uh, like approved by the by the owner of the building, and then turned down by the lender for that reason. So it it is a I, I would expect some change, but it's hard to predict from my seat um, what's going to drive that change among the lending you know the lender community. Yeah, that's interesting, but you touched on. The uh, let's flip it over. Let's put our occupier hats on for a second. Um, you touched on if I'm a tenant, uh, you know, sending an RFP to a landlord or sending my initial proposal, you're actually seeing it, the language in these initial rounds of negotiation that hey, like, like tell us what your flex option is in the in the building because. Mm-hmm. Quite frankly, we might not know how many people are coming in on a daily basis. Yeah, we'll commit to some sort of lease with you, but it's not going to be as big or long term as it used to be. And for that, we need to know, like, what can you offer us in terms of flex? Is that you're actually seeing that in like the initial rounds of negotiation? hundred um, percent. And so what it ends up looking like at the early stage of working with an occupier for square foots brokers and, and for myself is, you know, Hey, I've got a requirement for space. Maybe it's in, you know, Soho or Dumbo or, or 
uh, you know, you know, Orange County, right? To to be diverse in what we're talking about here, um, the question inevitably becomes: How much space do you need? Right? That's the question that the broker is going to ask, and and that answer has gotten much harder than it used to be. Right? It it was well, you know, X amount of square feet per person, perfect. We'll have a little bit extra, you know, anywhere between 180 and 200, or 150 and 200 square feet per person is the historic kind of metric, those metrics are are much more difficult to come by. So the, the conversations end up going to, well, three days a week, we want this. And and what I've ended up seeing, and, and this is by, far from a rule of thumb or, or anything, is roughly half of the employees in a market is, is, is how they're starting, how occupiers are starting to size requirements these wow. days. And for for any long-term lease, they, they have twice as many employees and, and they're going to see them at some point. They won't see them zero. So then the occupier has to decide, what do I do for a weekly meeting? So we've had these, these discussions where we have a weekly all hands, or what if we've got a monthly all hands, or what if it's a quarterly and we're bringing people in from other markets? It's those types of scenarios that that extra flex space, be it event space in the building, common space, amenity space in the building, or co-working in the building, really start to uh, be an asset and a problem solve for for those occupiers. And and those, you know, now it's it's really starting to um, happen in more formal RFPs and formal proposal processes that that's being required. And that that's really in the last six to 12 months in our experience. That's that's fascinating and scary at the same time because you're talking about 50% of the space being absorbed in a given market where there's vacancy because companies are starting to think that um, like just what you described, which is like, we don't need everybody there every day. So there's no, there's no calculation anymore where remember the old like space programming worksheets, you would have, you know, number of employees, like how many private offices, how many cubicles, how many conference rooms do we need? And there was a metric for each one of those rooms. And it would literally be a spreadsheet that told you, you need 75,000 square feet, and they would go lease it. Um, yep. But that's totally, totally backwards now, which is fascinating. Um, what is your number one um, kind of piece of advice, I guess, if I was if I was the head of a, a publicly traded tech company, and I've suddenly realized that I can take advantage of, or maybe not, maybe put in a more positive way, provide a working environment for my employees that doesn't require me to lease a space for each one of them. But I'm trying to figure out how to like execute on that. Like, what is the number one piece of advice that you usually give people? Um, <laughs> and it's probably I, so I'll, qual I'll qualify that a little bit because not every company is the same right like i think this is where culture comes in this is where you know the vision of the company comes in and like the mission of the company um and, and sometimes even who the ceo is and like what their personal thoughts on it are so i'm sure there's not like a, a silver bullet for this but i'm just curious like as the advisor and you probably know the space better than anybody like like what is what is that first conversation like you know, the, the best thing I saw, and this is going to sound like just a terrible answer, and I, I apologize. <laughs> no advance, bad answers. I'm fully occupied. It, it's, it's test a bunch of stuff. So 
LinkedIn has done this in their own in their own offices where they've intentionally created lots of different types of zones for lots of different types of work and and basically they're they're trying to trying to see and they've paired that with a really flexible work policy, right? And so, you know, where people work is, is largely up to the employee or the manager. And so what they're doing is by putting those those things together, they're they're seeing what sticks, right? Um, so test, be open and test. I mean, I'll, I'll give you two examples. We, we have a client, um, a publicly traded, uh, digital marketing company that, that said, Hey, our, what we're going to do is we're going to turn all of our offices into jungle themed collaboration spaces. So, so they, they didn't test. They just went in and said, Hey, we're going to do that. And you know, I'll need to check back with them to kind of see how that's going. That That's almost the opposite of what I'm saying about testing. Like, you know, try a jungle quadrant, right? Or, or try a, and try something different. Um, I have a, a good friend who runs a company called Refinery that tracks the portfolios of 110 or so of the largest companies in the world. And so I do look to him for some of these answers and some of these trends. And Here's some of the things that he said, you know, number one, renewals are spaces falling on average, it's not falling 50%, but, but on the renewals that the leading edge of renewals of that, that were in place during COVID on average, they're getting renewed, but they're, they're renewing at 20% less space. So it's not, you know, it's not, you know, it's not 50% less space. It's 20% at the same time among tech and media and, and large tech and media companies, Flex is now about 10% of their, uh, of their locations as a company. And that, that is dramatically up from where it was pre, pre-COVID. And part of the reason they're doing that is you, Flex by its very design is a network. There's a lot of them, you know, there's lots of different brands to choose from. So it allows a, a company to provide space that is geographically more flexible as well as uh, contractually more flexible. So that's another trend that, that feels like, you know, would, co- would come into uh, the world of advice. But another piece of advice is the more barriers you put up between you and your employees being able to come in, probably the worst. So, so we've heard a lot of stories about hoteling and having to check in and reserve space. Those types of things feel hey, like yes. they... They're a pain in the ass and they feel like they're not going <laughs> to, yeah. you, you can't give employees choice and then make it hard for them to choose yeah. what you want them to choose. Right. Um, so I think that, that is something that I think is really important. Um, this, this is fascinating too. I, I, I think a lot of the stereotypical perks that, um, you know, call it food and beverage or having a slide in your office or pool tables or whatever those are also going out the window. The office is really not for that. Like that's not the purpose of an office. That's, you can go do that somewhere else. So those types of things uh, feel like they're going away in favor of, I want to facilitate really specific communication with really specific teams that's really valuable. And so I think just from a, from an advice standpoint, those are four or five things I think we're, we're seeing as, as this world's changing, but it, but it's gotta be start with testing. Yeah. Test some stuff, see what works and, and what works for your culture. Yeah. 
definitely iterate through it. And, you know, I think the benefit of being able to test is that maybe the real estate market has softened enough where you actually could get decent terms with owners now that you could actually like test things out and not feel like you have to put 250 bucks per square foot into a space and not know if people are going to show up or how they're going to actually use that space. I think there's probably a lot of horror stories of people just saying, Oh, we're going, we're going to go like full remote and like have this whole scheduling thing where people need to come into the office and make it really hard for them to figure out like their mode of working and then set their office up for that. And then all of a sudden it's just like, well, people aren't coming in or they don't like it here. We already sunk all this money into it. We've signed a 10 year lease. Like you got to wait eight more years to, to just make another decision. So, yeah. So I, I'll, I'll say a couple other things related to this. And, and one read a, a guy named Nicholas Bloom. He's a, he's a Stanford professor who uh, has studied remote work well before COVID and, and just has some really thoughtful information about it. Um, but I'll, I'll tell a story also. So I have a good friend who started a company or, or was on the founding team of a company uh, when they had six people. He, he sold it. Um, uh, he sold it just last year for over a billion dollars. And for, I would say, I would say 90% of the employees of that company never really went to an office. That was not their mode of, of working. Right. So, so they did get an office uh, for a time that really wasn't utilized when they were adding a lot of new and young employees. So it became an onboarding experience for the company, uh, really for young employees who, who part of being young and starting your career is being in person. And, and I thought in terms of like a minimal use of an office, that was a really like, if that's all you were going to have it for, that's a, a, a really good use. But this story illustrates, I think, the, the next point, which I, I really believe some companies are, are going to be able to exist as mostly, if not all, remote, like, and they will optimize and, and adapt and build processes and use technology that help them to do that. And that'll be what they are. And they can hire people anywhere they want and, and take advantage of, of wage scales and all kinds of things. Then there'll be companies that I think really are built around an in-person culture and use that as a differentiator. Um, and so I think you'll have both. I think the where there's going to be the most noise is in we haven't really decided the role that in-person plays in our business. And so we're going to be occupy this middle or hybrid ground. That's a that's a tough place to be because it it creates a lot of friction uh, in the management, in the hiring, in the organization, and the teamwork. And so, so um, to me, when I've when I've read pronouncements like that, that that seemed reasonable to me. Yeah, there's like I think there's a lot of stuff that is going to get figured out over the next few years. And I think your advice on testing and iterating, and you know, trying to align that with what your company's vision is and the culture that you want is is probably that's the best piece of advice you can get. But at some point, you just got to rip the bandaid off and choose a path. Um, yeah, you, you do. Know. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, um, enough of the enough of the serious talk. Let's get into the final segment here. Our fast five questions. You get a minute to answer each, and I will start with question number one. What is your favorite thing to do, Ben, in your free time? <laughs> I live in Boulder, Colorado, right on the open space. So it's to head out my backyard. We have a little trail right out of our backyard with my 
two Bernese mountain dogs and hopefully my wife, she doesn't, doesn't always come, but uh, go and do that. I, I started doing that really a lot in COVID and the hikes got longer and longer. Now I, I probably get out three or four days a week and it might just be for 30 minutes or an hour, but it is absolutely my meditation. That's great. I mean, two Bernese mountain dogs, that's a, that's a pretty hefty monthly dog food bill right there. I would imagine a lot of hair, there's too. some hair issues, hair yeah. issues. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Um, question two, what show or book are you currently obsessed with? You know, I'm re I'm, um, uh, I'm reading a book on negotiation that, um, uh, I think I'm paraphrasing the name, but, but never, uh, never meet in the middle. Yeah. Don't I, split I, the I'm difference by Chris the Voss, the FBI don't, hostage yeah, negotiator. Yeah. Yeah. Don't I live by that book. And yeah. Awesome. I mean, for me, I, I've been a, been a founder and a CEO and, and now working, you know, at another company. And for me, the, the negotiation, the, the process of being in relationship and not necessarily being in control of, of outcomes uh, has been just a great new set of skills for me to to learn, and so that book is I'm about halfway through it right now, and it it's the kind of book uh, my friend David Mandel, who started Pivot Desk, you may know David, recommended it to me, and uh, he described it as the kind of book that you just take notes on the entire time. And, yeah, and, I got to uh, remember I that. Like that <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, <laughs> There's one, there's one, uh, one, one tool that I've used from that book that has uh, served me well over, over the years is, um, he's got that phrase, uh, where you, if somebody's ghosting you and they haven't responded to you, send them a text or an email and say, have you given up on me? Because it, it, <laughs> it, it, it like puts this kind of like guilt into the person where they don't want to admit that they gave up on something. So you'll automatically get a response, whether the response is positive or negative doesn't matter. It's just that they've gotten back to you and now you know where you stand. Uh, so right, I've, right. Made, I've made use of that one um, over the years. It works every time, actually. Um, right. Question number three, uh, what's your favorite comfort food? And I know you live in Boulder, so it's probably something like a kale smoothie or, you know, like an acai bowl, but we're talking comfort food. Yeah. Kale, kale smoothies are not comfort food. <laughs> um, so I do, I have a, I have a Traeger smoker. Oh yeah. Uh, which, which I got as a gift and I was like, that's not a grill. And I was arguing against it, but it was, I've now fallen in love with the thing. So I do a, I do a smoked pulled pork on it with homemade, um, uh, North Carolina style mustard based sauce that I just, I love doing it. Probably do it three or four times a year and last for about a week and oh, yeah. can't beat it. Yeah, you're just eating meat for a straight. That's week. comfort food. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you got to get the sides with it too, some mac and cheese and some good coleslaw or whatever. Um, all Absolutely. right, cool. Question number four: If you could travel in time, would you go backwards or would you go forwards? I I love this question, and when I saw it, I, I was like, "Oh, this is going to be great." I I spend so much time trying to imagine the future. I, I'd go to the future and. How far I'd go. I mean, I'm I, one of my favorite shows is called The Expanse, which oh, I yeah. think is a, a future. It's a it's a later question, but The Expanse is it's so vivid that the future that they envision. I think about like 50, 40, 50 years from now, where Mars is a thing and and the belt, you know, is a yeah, thing. Yeah, people are inhabiting all sorts of, of yeah, right, right. And 
uh, and the two most precious commodities are air and water. Like I want to see if that future is the future or just some kind of half vision of the future. That was the best we could do today. Yeah. Cool. I debate this question myself and I'm still trying to figure out my answer, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. We could have a whole episode on that. Um, all right. Our last question, which is a standard, who are two people that we should uh, invite on this podcast next? Yeah. So um, yeah, two people. Number one is my partner in the flex location services practice at square foot, Patrick Braswell. Um, I know he Patrick. is, he's a long time, he's a long time broker, but he is a broker who now really has devoted himself to, flex and the future of flex. And after 17 years in the industry, that's not like he could have, have not, ridden his coattails and just done kind of standard stuff. Yeah. Not an easy zig um, when everyone else zags. Yeah. But he's been, he's been so quick to learn. He He's fascinated by the agreement types. He's fascinated by the, by the changes in ownership. He's fascinated by the, the pace of it. And so I, I'd recommend Patrick, who can really speak to, I think, some of the changes that a lot of, of your broker uh, partners and customers are, are going to go through because he's he's gone through them. Uh, the other one's Brandon Medeiros, who uh, runs a company called Allidade Partners uh, that's based in New York. They're an advisor. They're a flex advisory firm, but mostly like I'm a I'm a data nerd and sales talker. But Brandon does both of those to a degree I've never seen before. He is super visionary, super entertaining, great guy to drink tequila with. Oh, there we go. Uh, great guy to debate stuff with. Um, so I recommend both of them. Well, we will certainly follow up on those leads um, because that's where we get a lot of our guests. It's just through this network of people that have joined us and um, – you know, having these conversations with people like you, Ben, have been great. Hopefully our listeners uh, learn a lot about, you know, how to navigate this like new normal of flex office space, uh, especially our, our office tenants and our tenant rep brokers who advise them. Um, we appreciate you having on, uh, coming on. Um, but for, for anybody that wants to get in touch, whether you're a tenant trying to figure out your flex uh, strategy, whether you're a tenant rep broker trying to figure out how to talk to customers about it or just somebody interested, how do we find you, Ben? Yeah. So, I mean, I'll LinkedIn is, is the way that you found me, Matt. So that's a great way to do it. I don't know if it's uncool to put your, to give your email out, but I do answer emails. So ben.right at squarefoot.com. Also check us out. We post a lot of content uh, on upsuite.com. We have a great blog uh, called um, uh, uh, the upsuite, essentially the, the future of work. And so um, yeah, uh, please check us out there. Cool. Ben, appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Matt.